0: This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight, and I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago. And I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there. So some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old worn frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and... Some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts. So they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, They have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 295 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show Ron Starworth. Now, Ron is a career veteran of the Colorado Springs Police Department, but he is also the gentleman featured in the movie Black Klansman, based on a book he wrote uh, of the same name. So if you haven't seen it, very long story short, Ron was able to infiltrate the KKK As a young black police officer. So I'm going to let him tell the story on this interview. But as you can imagine, an incredible story, some very powerful lessons and tangents in this interview as well. So before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on subscribe to the show. Leave feedback. I really do love reading what you write. And then, of course, leave a rating. The five-star ratings do really make us more visible when people are looking for a podcast like this. And then lastly, take whichever means you have and share these incredible episodes. We're approaching 300 episodes of Behind the Shield Podcast. That's 300 people telling their stories that I know will change lives around the world if we can just get these recordings to the people that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ron Starworth, enjoy. Brilliant. Um, so, I'd love to start at the very beginning. Then, um, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: On planet Earth, you're finding me in El Paso, Texas, where I grew up.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, that's where I'd love to start. So, if you wouldn't mind telling me, like, what your family dynamic was, what your parents did, and and how many siblings you had.
1: I come from a divorced uh, family. Uh, I was raised by my mother. Uh, she's deceased now. My father was military. Uh, he was a real worthless bastard. And uh my mother was the glue that kept us together. And uh there were five of us in the family. I'm the third of the uh five. And uh that's uh that's the basic story.
0: Right. Now obviously we're gonna talk about how you certainly think you know, thought outside the box when it came to your Career in law enforcement. Were there any elements of your upbringing with your mother and your brothers and sisters that you think contributed to you being um, innovative when it came to your police career?
1: Not really. My mother, uh, my mother was a minimum wage worker for her entire life. She raised five kids on minimum wage, and never once did she uh, go into welfare roles to. Uh, supplement her income, uh, she worked. I'm very proud and always have been proud of the fact that uh, that was her basic personality. Um, She had one basic rule, and that was uh, because she dropped out of high school in her junior year in Chicago, she had one basic rule that she lived by, and that was none of her children would ever drop out of high school. And if uh, we did, we were we would be kicked out of the house. All of her children graduated from high school, and my older brother, five years older, who's deceased now, my older brother and I are the only two high school graduates in, the, in our immediate family. I mean, I are the only two college graduates in our immediate family. Um, that was something my mother was extremely proud of uh, when I got my college de- uh, uh, degree. I gave my mother a copy of it and she sat there and cried, uh, cause she could never conceive of the idea of being a college graduate, much less having uh, a son in this case, two sons who were college graduates. So I was always proud of my mother for being, um, uh, a strong, determined woman, a strong, determined black woman on top of that. And, uh, or keeping us on that straight and
0: narrow path yeah and that's just something that i talk about a lot on the podcast is you can change a pattern you can change a cycle of you know let's say poverty or crime or you know whatever it is addiction um just by investing in in your children and being a present parent it sounds exactly like that's what your mom understood regardless of of uh economic wealth if you're present with your kids you can set them up for success in their journey
1: that's very true. That's very true. And uh, if I have any regrets today, it's the fact that my mother's not around to uh, enjoy the fact that I have achieved a level of success that she never could have conceived
0: of. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she's looking down and, and seeing every moment of it. Um, well, with the, with the childhood um, arena, what about athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were young?
1: I played, uh, organized, uh, sports up until the eighth grade. Um, I was a running back in football and a defensive back. Um, I ran track. I was a sprinter and a long jumper. I, uh, played basketball and, uh, when I got into high school, I chose not to be a participant in sports. Um, I recognized the limitations of my athletic talent, and I recognized that uh, at the high school level, I would not be uh, as competitive, and therefore chose not to uh, sit on the bench. so I chose not to play sports. However, I was uh, I started training in Chofakan uh, Karate when I was 14 years old, and I participated in that for a number of years, um, got fairly uh, good, fairly proficient, became the instructor at the University of Texas El Paso Karate Club until I left El Paso in 1972.
0: Brilliant. Actually, shows was the, the first martial artist I started with as well. It was a great, great foundation for a martial artist. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, then you kind of touch on it in the book. Um, you know, when, when we get into the, 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 extremes of, of, um, you know, the racial bias, I guess, in the two groups that you highlight in the book and in the film. Um, you touch on the fact that in other areas of America, it seemed like race was a lot more of an issue than, than where you grew up. Um, so tell me what the, the environment was like in, in El Paso for a young black man.
1: El Paso was a good city to grow up during the 60s uh, because even though El Paso is a southern city and a southern state, we did not have the racial tensions uh, going on that the Deep South did. Everything that Martin Luther King and uh, his uh, nonviolent army were battling, that was a reality show for us. Uh, We watched it on the evening news. We didn't have those activities taking place here in El Paso. Uh, We tuned in at five to six o'clock and 10 o'clock and we saw the beatings that were happening down south. We saw the fires that were going on. Um, We saw all hell breaking loose with whites attacking uh, nonviolent, innocent, young black children, uh, peacefully protesting. And uh, as I said, it was more or less a reality show for us. And uh, I was fortunate in that sense that uh, we didn't have to deal directly with it, but we were aware of uh, everything that was going on.
0: Yeah, well, a question for you, because I've asked this of a few guests, and I still haven't had an answer. They haven't had an answer either. What baffles me is in the forties, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm from England. So, you know, we had the, the British army. Obviously a lot of them were young white men, but we had, you know, the Gurkhas, we had the, the Indian army. We had all these different cultures that were fighting side by side against fascism. And we obviously had the same in the US. You had the Buffalo soldiers, you know, and, and, and these incredible airmen. Um, and what I don't understand is how you go from unifying a nation like that fighting a true evil to then five years later stringing black people up from trees again have you ever had any kind of anyone explain how we transition from a a united front of america to that incredible racism again just years after we were fighting the nazis because america has
1: never been united that's a myth America has always been white-dominated from, uh, from our inception as a nation in the 1770s. We have always been uh, white-dominated. Uh, our very Constitution, uh, our, our, our freedom documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, uh, they were false. They were lies. Uh, you got to remember, people like me, with my skin color, we were not people. We were, we were cattle. We were animals. We were three fifths of a human being. We weren't even one whole person. We were three fifths. That's in the Constitution. Um, so our nation was founded on a lie, on, on a whole bunch of lies. Our founding fathers were liars. They were rapists. They were, they were murderers. They were killing and beating, uh, my ancestors because they were slaveholders. So our nation has always been uh, untrue to its ideals. And that's the kind of environment that my ancestors had to exist in. And that's the type of environment that I had to grow up in. A lot of my white colleagues in law enforcement don't like to uh, face that reality. They just want to believe in the red, white, and blue. But the red, white, and blue has always been a false uh, a false uh notion and people need to uh, respect that uh, that
0: truth yeah well even i mean you know to to put the british on on trial for a second my my ancestry we i learned very recently visiting the state museum in charleston we were the ones actually that were going to africa and other other european nations as well and and buying the slaves and then selling them to the U.S., so it kind of looks like the UK's hands were kind of clean, and they actually, you know, weren't at all. And then also, forgetting um, African nations for a moment, what we did to the indigenous tribes here in America, what we did in, in Australia, yeah, you know, that that is an element of history that's very downplayed. And as as an immigrant coming in. You know the comment I get a lot is well, you know England has a has a a long history. I'm like, well, so does the U.S. If you <laughs> if you incorporate the native tribes that were here before my fellow you know Europeans arrived in this this country,
1: that's true. And I have uh, colleagues, uh, especially past colleagues in law enforcement, who like to point out, white colleagues I might add, who like to point out that well. My ancestors, they'll say, my ancestors didn't uh, have slaves. I wasn't a slaveholder. So why should I feel anything about uh, what happened to the slaves? Why should I feel any guilt towards that? And then they like to point out, well, there were blacks who uh, participated in the slave trade that cooperated with the slavers. And, uh, you know, don't blame it all on whites. And there's an element of truth to that. But that doesn't excuse the fact that whites dominated society. They have always dominated society and whites were the ones that set the rules. And one wrong uh, uh, does not, uh, uh, one right, I should say, does not uh, correct all the wrongs. And so just because you may not have uh, been directly involved with it, because you weren't around at the time, your ancestors probably were. And uh, even if they weren't, there were enough uh, whites back in those days involved in that trade to where uh, it grew and grew and grew until it got out of control. So you are not absolved of uh, guilt of uh, wrongdoing simply because you were not an active participant.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, that's the thing is just is acknowledging it, isn't it? It's not like that individual themselves – was responsible or would agree in, in any way, shape, or form with it. But I think probably what's jarring the most is this refusal to acknowledge our dark history. And I say our by America, you know, England, Portugal, and all these, all these countries that have a pretty sinister past. Um, you know, and then the perfect example is, is Nazi Germany. I mean, it, it amazes me how I'm 45 now. So less than my lifespan ago before I was born is when their narcissism was happening when they were literally, you know, killing hundreds of thousands of Jewish people and gypsies and blacks and, you know, every other person didn't fit their so-called Aryan image, which is laughable. When I know my history of how many times my country was conquered, there is no such thing as a pure race. We're Swedish and, you know, Roman and French and, you know, all these other, uh, you know, um, cultures that dominated my country before we, for some reason, miraculously became some Aryan nation.
1: Right. Right. A lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that.
0: Right. Well, I'd love to steer you kind of into law enforcement. So as a young man, regardless of skin color, how were the law enforcement perceived by young men in El Paso, Texas?
1: I couldn't say. I've never had any encounters with law enforcement. So I lived across the street from a, a black El Paso officer. Uh, I grew up with his daughter, who uh, was one of my best friends in elementary school, and uh, he was always decent with me. He was a good man, good husband, good father, and uh, that was my only encounter with uh, police growing up. Um, I never had any negative encounters with uh, police. For one thing, I feared my mother more than I feared police or anyone else.
0: That's the way it should be, isn't it? uh,
1: that's the way it should be, and I knew that if I did wrong, my mother uh, would be there to uh, set me on the right path, and I didn't want to be in uh in, in, in her wake, so I didn't have any involvement with police officers, so I couldn't say uh what it was like for for blacks in El Paso. I've heard stories, but that's all I can attest to is the stories that I heard,
0: yeah, yeah, because as a young white. Boy in a very rural town, you know, I got not harassed. It's the wrong word, but you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of the police because they kept thinking we were up to no good, you know, and <laughs> I wouldn't say pulling us over specifically, but you know, um, guilty until proven innocent, I guess was the, was the uh, way we were viewed. But again, that's just kind of young team boys that they're up to something. Um, so what about your personal journey then? How, what made you decide that you wanted to join the law enforcement community?
1: I wanted to make enough money to put myself through college and become a high school PE teacher.
0: And what was it about PE specifically that, that drew you to that?
1: So at the time, I was uh, uh, very physical. I was an athlete, and I wanted to be involved in athletics at some point, and I wanted to be a uh, in the teaching profession. So I wanted to be a PE teacher. But after a year of being in uh, working for the police department in Colorado Springs, I found out that, A, I was making twice as much money as a recent college graduate in the teaching profession, and, B, I was having too much fun working for the police department. So I decided to uh, stick it out, and 32 years later, I retired from law enforcement.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, then, the the first assignment that you kind of really talk about in um – in the book is, is not the KKK. It's the, uh, the kind of black power movement. So tell me about that first undercover assignment. My
1: first undercover assignment was Stokely Carmichael, one of the uh, leaders of the black Panther party. That was in 1975, about April of 75. I was assigned to monitor a speech he was giving, uh, at a local, uh, black, uh, bar
0: and to, uh,
1: to basically uh, gauge the audience reaction, uh, judge his uh, judge his delivery, his uh, rhetorical delivery, and uh, basically uh, make a determination as to how we, as a police agency, should respond. Uh, Stokey was a very dynamic, a very powerful speaker, and I was uh, my my task was to determine whether we should be concerned. As an agency, uh, to his uh, powers of persuasion, and how we should go about uh, responding to uh, his rhetorical delivery, uh, and whether we should be concerned about it. So that was my first undercover assignment.
0: Right, and did you did you? I know we're going to talk about the KKK. Okay. Okay. Did you see any any similarities between the extremes of? The black power group and the white power group. I'm not talking about the, the 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 more moderate middle, but but the the extremes of each set each side.
1: No, I didn't. Uh, let me answer it this way. Uh, extremist groups are basically the same, as far as I'm concerned. They have their uh, individual beliefs, but they're on the uh, they're far on the edges and uh, they're going to stick to the edges in terms of their belief patterns and uh, not reside in the middle. Stokely was on one extreme, the, uh, the KKK people that I later came to deal with were on another extreme. Um, they both thought that their, uh, their views were right and that uh, the other groups were wrong, uh, but they were nowhere in the middle in terms of uh, where America stood. And in my, opi- in, my in my opinion, such uh, such uh, groups and their belief patterns are, are all screwed up.
0: Yeah, because that's something that we've I've talked about several times with with guests, especially that are in law enforcement, military, is. We see now in, in, in this generation, this current climate, that what appears to be just a, a severe mental illness that results in, you know, a horrific bombing, mass shooting, whatever it is. And there's always a clinging to some cause, but th- there's no rhyme or reason to it. That, that's not creating an improvement to whatever cause they're supposedly hailing from. It, it's, it's just, it's mental illness, it's desperation in a feeble attempt at trying to create some sort of reason for their violence. Right. Right. Well then moving on then. So you mentioned the KKK, I'd love to hear, you know, your, your take on how you initially found that connection and then just kind of, you know, obviously not tell the whole book, but just the cliff notes of, of your experiences entering the KKK as a black man.
1: Well, that came about as uh The book and the movie point out, uh, I was uh, working as an intelligence uh, detective for Colorado Springs Police Department in uh, October of 1978. I saw an ad in the newspaper in the classified section. It said Ku Klux Klan for information. And then there was a P.O. box. So I wrote a letter to the P.O. box, basically identifying myself as a uh, white supremacist. Who had uh, similar beliefs uh, as the KKK and wanted to join uh, to stop the to stop the uh, uh, furtherance of uh, blacks and to uh, promote the white supremacist notion. Uh, so I wrote this letter, gave the undercover uh, phone line, which at that time was an untraceable line and uh, signed my real name, Ron Starworth, instead of my undercover name, which I should have done, and put the letter in the mail and forgot about it. And about a week or two later, I got a response back in the form of uh, a phone call to the office on that undercover line. And the voice uh, a- the voice on the phone asked to speak to Ron Starworth, And... I immediately got suspicious because no one called Ron Stalworth on that line, and the voice identified itself as Ken Odell, the local chapter president of the KKK in Colorado Springs, and he wanted to know why I uh, wrote the letter requesting membership in the Klan. And you might say that's when my uh, that's when my investigation officially started because I had to immediately come up with a plan. And I told him that I wanted to join the Klan because I hated uh, niggers, sticks, chinks, Jews, jacks, and anybody else who wasn't pure Aryan white like I was. His response to me was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? That's, that's when I said, oh shit.
0: So there you and are on the end of the phone as a black man, and now you've got to figure out how you can be physically present in front of this kkk member
1: like i said that's when my investigation officially started so i had to come up with a plan and I, my plan i obviously i had to think outside the box and put something together and uh, we were off and running
0: right so tell me about how you were able to find a colleague who could play you in real life that that makes sense
1: in the book, I identified my colleague as Chuck, not his real name. In the movie, he was Adam Driver, and his name was changed to Flip Zimmerman. Chuck was a good undercover uh, detective. He worked narcotics at the time. And he was about my height, my weight. And uh, I wanted Chuck to play me for that reason. So I went to the lieutenant that he worked for. Well, I had worked, uh, I worked for the same lieutenant in narcotics about a year earlier, and the lieutenant and I had a parting of the ways. It uh, was a mutual uh, respect that parted our ways. And uh, I asked the lieutenant for the use of Chuck to play me in this uh, caper. The lieutenant said, you can't have him. I'm not going to waste a valuable undercover operative on a bunch of uh men wearing white sheets, a bunch of nonsense. And uh, the lieutenant said, besides, your plan won't work because you've already talked to them on the phone. And once Chuck walks in there, they'll recognize the difference between his voice, a white man's voice, and your voice, a black man that they've been talking to on the phone. So I asked the lieutenant, I said, what does a black man sound like? And he just stared at me. He couldn't answer me. I asked him that several times, and he never could answer. Finally, he just said, you can't have him. I said, okay. I turned around and walked away, went to my sergeant, told the sergeant what he said. The sergeant said, what do you want to do about it? I said, I want to take it directly to the chief of police. Now, in Colorado Springs, we had a rank structure that consisted of patrolmen and detectives were on the same plane. And then you had uh, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, deputy chief, and chief. So I bypassed four people in the rank structure and went directly to the chief, top of the rank. It could have been a career ending move on my part. At that point, I didn't care. I wasn't going to let this lieutenant win. So I went, uh, me and the sergeant went to the chief's office. I told the chief what I had done, my conversation on the phone, my conversation with the uh, lieutenant, and told him my plan. He said, what all do you need? I said, I need two surveillance officers and Chuck to play me. The lieutenant, I mean, the chief got on the phone to the lieutenant. He told the lieutenant to give me anything I needed, and my investigation was off and running at that point.
0: Brilliant. But I want to do a little backstory of the KKK, if you wouldn't mind to educate us, you know, the audience, because we're all familiar of the sheets. We're all familiar of the burning cross. Some people might have seen Mississippi burning, but um, the history of it, I think, is is almost comical, especially the reason why they're wearing the sheets. So if, if you're able just to kind of educate us from the, the Confederacy, like how this, this group was even born in the first place and the purpose of the sheets.
1: The plan came about as a result of uh, the end of the Civil War, Reconstruction, um, they, they were trying to terrorize, or the whole purpose was to terrorize uh, blacks, the newly freed slaves, to prevent them from gaining any traction in the new... Um, new United States, and they did not want these slaves to be able to vote or have any uh, sense of uh, franchisement in the new America following the Civil War. So what the KKK did, uh, these veterans, uh, these Southerners, they put on sheets. And in some of, in some cases, they covered their horses in sheets, and they rode around at night with uh, torches and burning crosses on the property of uh, slaves, their homes and, and uh, farms, or and whatnot, and basically terrorizing them. And their story was they were the ghosts of uh, of a recently departed uh, Civil War veterans and uh in doing this the slaves many of them who were still uh bound by their african traditions they believed in spirits they believed in hauntings and they were frightened to the core and so this was how the clan operated back then was to keep the uh, newly freed slaves in line and to uh, keep from uh, uh uh exercising their franchisement as uh, newly free citizens with power, they wanted them to continue following the old ways of the south and uh not to uh not to use anything newly established by the uh defeat of the south so that's how the Ku Klux Klan came into being. And uh, that
0: was their sole purpose. Right. Well, another, another thing you refer to, and I also remember seeing it on um, a great documentary, 13th. I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, and it's kind of like the history of, of how slavery, in a way, transitioned into imprisonment in, in modern prison systems. Um, but is the, the movie, The Birth of the Nation. So, again, I, if you were able just to kind of tell us a little bit about that and, and the, the accolades that it got when it came out.
1: Birth Foundation came about around 1915 or so. That was a rebirth period for the Ku Klux Klan. They increased their membership uh, exponentially. That was their longest uh, dominant period of uh, existence in America. Uh, And D.W. Griffith, a major Hollywood producer, uh, he produced blockbuster movies at the time in the early uh, film days of Hollywood, moving pictures. And Birth of a Nation was one of the first blockbuster movies ever. Um, He produced uh, this movie about the Klan. And basically the Klan saved a decadent, destroyed society in America. And they came about and rescued that They could have destroyed society and uh, they were portrayed as heroes. And it played very well. It was shown in the White House to President Wilson, who was a racist, by the way, and uh, a Klan supporter. And um, he gave it good publicity in his review. And because of that film, the Klan's uh, ranks grew even larger. To this day, the Klan uses "Birth of a Nation" in their recruitment of new members.
0: Yeah, and watching it. So, so just for everyone listening, you have a white guy in blackface pretending to be a black slave who supposedly was accused of raping a white woman, and 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 there's a, a lynching, and it's and then you know that, like you said, the Klans come in like the the cavalry, and and it's it's a, it's a absolutely blatantly you know racist movie you know, the, the black people are portrayed as you know like you said like lesser than people um and the fact that that was only a hundred years ago being shown in the White House and hailed as a, a Hollywood classic just blows me away but it illustrates the underlying um cancer of of hatred that we had in here and, and again to be fair I'm sure in many other countries obviously certainly in Germany but um you know at many other places around the world where one group is viewed as lesser than another
1: yes that's very true and uh the the propaganda appeal of birth uh, of a nation is still uh, very much active uh to this day
0: yeah well i want to take a tangent with you because i mean this would be a, a fascinating perspective from you personally as a fireman um I've witnessed uh, racism in, you know, in several of the places I've worked, not from, from not overtly by any means, but individuals amongst those, those men and women, the white people, black people, you know, Hispanic uh, heritage that are, you know, blatantly racist towards whites, towards blacks, towards Hispanics, you know, whatever, different religions, yet they wear a badge. And when the tones go off, they go and do their job. And I found that such a, a ridiculous paradox that you hold this. And I don't think any of them had like a, a, an aggressive hatred, but certainly, you know, a, a racist mind that then you would go and put your life at risk for the exact people you say you, you hold disdain to. Um, you came across a firefighter in this particular KKK chapter. So as a, as a policeman yourself, what is your understanding of racism in some of these professions where we're actually willing to die for the very people that some of these men and women are racist towards?
1: I found it curious, to say the least, uh, you're referring to Fred Wilkins, who was the grand dragon for the state of Colorado. He was a fireman for the city, which is a Denver suburb. They tried to fire Fred on several occasions, city of Lakewood did. The problem was, by all indications, he was an exemplary fireman, and they couldn't get rid of him. And Fred even gave articles, newspaper uh, interviews, in which he said he feels that blacks are inferior to whites, and uh, he believes in the, the KKK. When it comes to his job, he puts all of that aside and he does his job to the best of his ability.
0: So they were never
1: able to. Used the civil service uh, rules and guidelines to uh, terminate, and to the best of my knowledge, he retired with a pension.
0: Yeah, and I just find that so strange. I mean, that's that's the the, the outward symptoms, and obviously, you know, there there can be just an uh, an internal opinion that never manifests into anything negative towards a group of people. You know, internal a monologue. But obviously, you know, with the clan, with the, the Black Panthers, with, you know, with um, these extreme Muslim groups that we're seeing, there's also a lot of, of, of violence, you know, with lynchings, perfect example. Um, and I just, I don't understand how you can volunteer to be a first responder and still be ignorant enough to hold those kind of hateful prejudices. Like, I mean, I get it if you are you know, working in a, in a factory somewhere and you're just stewing on that. But when you're putting your life on the line and prepare to die for someone, how can you not look in the mirror and see the hypocrisy of, of this racial hatred that you've been raised with? It just doesn't make any sense to me.
1: No, it doesn't. What if you uh, happened to come across a black citizen or a Jewish citizen in need of uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? What would you do? And he said I would give it to them because that's my job. And uh, I know that if I were in such a situation, I would have hated to have Fred be the one to uh, look down at me and be giving me mouth-to-mouth resuscitation.
0: Yeah, it's it's crazy. And then again, I just I wonder, you know, what Fred's childhood was like, what his upbringing was like, where he learned to hate, because you know, American now he grew up in Alabama. Okay, so he was probably surrounded by the same kind of philosophy then. So I want to bring us back to to, to present day at the moment um, and get your perspective as you know, an officer from from you know a couple of decades ago now, and also you know a, a a man of color in uniform. At the moment, the current climate is being told a very polarizing story. You've got the the Black Lives Matter movement. You've got the the Blue Lives Matter movement. Um, which, again, they're, they're two, two snapshots of two extremes where the reality is you've got men and women of all colors and creeds putting a badge on their chest, willing to, to risk their lives, um, and of which you know, I'm proud to serve next to 95% of all of them. What is your view on, on, on the environment in law enforcement and in, in race in general um, of our current climate in 2020?
1: Uh, I think Blue Lives Matter movement is basically a joke, and I'll tell you why. No one was ever going around saying Blue Lives Matter until you heard the expression Black Lives Matter. No one was going around saying White Lives Matter until you heard the expression Black Lives Matter. These are people... And in terms of Blue Lives Matter, these are people in my profession that decided to jump on the bandwagon and counter-protest those so-called radical extremes that they feel were in the wrong. I don't feel it's necessary. Uh, The people at Black Lives Matter are not revolutionary terrorists. They're people that are simply trying to live and survive in America who are are being treated wrongfully, whose constitutional rights are being violated. And they're protesting that. And as part of their protest, the slogan Black Lives Matter was coined. And I've always said, and I told Jay uh, Dobbins this, if somebody's rights are being violated, if the Constitution is not being adhered to, then the uh, person violating those rights needs to be booted out of the profession. They're bad cops. They're dirty cops. I don't adhere to bad cops of any kind. The concept of uh, Blue Lives Matter, I think, is a false notion. Yes, Blue Lives Matter. I'm not saying that our lives don't, but I don't need to go around proclaiming Blue Lives Matter and everything simply because there's a group called Black Lives Matter whose constitutional rights are being violated by people in blue uniforms.
0: Yeah, so so to to play devil's advocate well not even that's that's the wrong even phrase. So just to so that's that's the, the dirty cops like you said and, and no one I don't think of any sound mind is gonna argue that. But then we've got a lot of a lot of um, uh, gray area, you know, where the, the cops are truly defending themselves. You know, they're having to pull their weapon, um, which I think they're getting dragged into into that side as well, where, you know, we're asking men and women of law enforcement to, you know, to go out at night to, to work these extra shifts. are sleep deprived. They might be under-trained. And some of these gray areas may be, you know, a training issue, uh, an overworking issue. Still horrendous, still tragic, whoever, you know, was on the receiving end. But I, I feel like there's that polarizing thing, like every shooting the cop was wrong is how it's being told now, regardless, again, of, of the, the skin color of the cop and or the person that was shot. And I, I think it's a very dangerous thing to just say, oh, it's 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 always race that's causing this because it's not. There's, there's, there's all these underlying areas that we can improve on to stop our... Citizens of all colors being as likely to commit crimes, whether it's drug policy, whether it's prison reform, um, and obviously train our men and women in law enforcement to to be able to, for example, go to go to hands rather than use their weapons. You know the jujitsu, the strength training, the the um, uh, you know the tactical training, those kind of things. So, um, what what's your view on that? That you've got the dirty cops. There's no question, hands down, that like the Rodney Kings a perfect example that was you know, a disgrace. But what about the ones where you know, you're seeing it where you as a law enforcement officer would say, well, I might have actually done the same thing myself in that position?
1: Police officers have always had to contend with uh, issues of confrontation with the public. It's how you contend with those issues that comes into question. And when you are doing things that go against the grain of the Constitution as you, been, as you have been trained to do, that's when you get into trouble. That's what I'm talking about. But when you have a situation like uh, uh, Mr. Scott down in South Carolina a couple of years back, where he was running away from that officer and it was clearly shown on video, that officer pulled his gun and shot him in the back from about 13 feet away, that is wrong. There is no justification for that. And yet my colleagues in law enforcement around the country defended that officer. That is wrong. There is no excuse for that. I don't condone that in any way, shape or form. You cannot, you cannot talk that your way out of that. That is a classic example of a bad cop. And that is not a good example of blue lives matter. That's an example of a dirty cop that needs to be put away for an extended period of time and doesn't belong in the profession. It's those type of situations that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, and I agree. And I've I've had you know like so many police officers murdered here, just in the Orlando area, that I either you know had worked with or were in my my neighboring counties. Um, You know, so that's the other side is we're getting all these police officers murdered. So my thing is this: you've got the criminals on the street who are a result of you know several areas that I think we can improve. You've got the the police officers on on the street. Who you know can be trained better, and or we create an environment where it's not as dangerous for them. There are countries in in the world where the police don't get <laughs> don't shoot people, and don't get shot them either. You know, so um, you know what, a couple of areas that I've talked about um, a lot on this podcast. One is uh, uh, the legalization of drugs, so the addict becomes a patient, not. A criminal, you know, they're not locked away, which is a big thing about the 13th movie I was talking about. Um, and that worked very well in Portugal. I interviewed the guy that spearheaded that in Portugal. Um, and then, and then prisons again, if it, right now we have a profit based prison system, we're not driven to, to stop, you know, reoffending because when our prisons are full, someone's getting very, very rich. So for me, fixing those social areas will not only make it safer for the citizens, regardless of color, but also our brothers and sisters in blue, because now the streets aren't going to be as dangerous and they're not going to be as apt to even pull their weapon in the first place.
1: What I am talking about is simple. Don't depend at cops. My colleagues in blue, I have been rejected by a lot of uh, police officers guys that I work with in Colorado Springs simply because I will not stand up and defend the police profession right or wrong when incidents arise that garner public uh, garner a lot of public attention. I judge each I judge each situation separate. And you go back to the Scott situation down in South Carolina? There is no justification for what happened down there. That was clearly wrong. And yet I've got colleagues that defend that officer that say he was wrongfully judged, that uh, not have been condemned, he should not have been convicted, uh, and will yell, blue lives matter. And I say fuck that. Blue lives don't matter in that situation. He's a dirty cop. He needs to be condemned for what he did. He murdered a man and was caught on camera in the discussion. And If, you, if, you, if police officers don't agree with you on that, then fuck them too.
0: Yeah. well, I, th- I think most people would absolutely agree with you, Ron. That's the thing. And I think there was another one just released and I haven't heard people's take on it. But f- again, from... What I watched, it was two officers. I think all three people were black, if I remember rightly. Um, the you know the the perpetrator criminal, whatever you want to call the gentleman that was being detained, um, and then a female and a male officer, and they're struggling with him. I think they deployed a the taser, It didn't work, and you know the one black officer said shoot him, and you know told his partner to shoot the guy. Now they were laying on hands, but very ineffectively. So, again, in that situation, you know, had they been trained, like, I mean, you did show a when you were in, in you know, in law enforcement and been able to effectively restrain that that gentleman, then, um, you know, he, he wouldn't have need to be shot in the first place. Now, I, I believe he was in critical care, but actually didn't die. So, that's obviously a, a good thing. But, you know, going to the weapon, the, some of these ones that I see, it's a lack of training as well. You know, it's a lack of physical fitness. It's a lack of understanding of of, of grappling and combatives, um, and I think that's another area that that some agencies are doing it very well, but some agencies definitely need to do a lot better. And I don't think anyone anyone no fireman's going to defend a shitty fireman. I've had people on here who's one gentleman lost his son because of a, an awful series of events with a couple of paramedics. No one's going to stand behind them. A fourteen year old boy died, so I think anyone stands behind a true bad cop is is completely in the wrong so I think that most people listening would agree with you and it's trying to fix the, the grey areas and trying to create an environment where there's just less crime in general where we do proactive initiatives that stop people getting to that point where they're addicts, where they're in gangs where whatever it is that's creating this crime that we see is so rife in America compared to a lot of other countries in the world
1: I would agree with that but as I said earlier each situation should be judged individually, not collectively thrown together in, in, a, in a posture of uh, Blue Lives Matter. Some situations are clearly visible as being wrong. I will not defend a bad cop or his uh, bad actions. I will not stand by that. I will not join that blue wall of silence and uh, disdirect a barrier for any outside uh, protest by saying Blue Lives Matter. For, to me that's bullshit. And if I stand if I stand
0: alone in that, then I stand alone. Yeah. Well and just and just you do, you do a great example of doing the the converse as well. So just to throw the other side in, in the book you talk about a young black boy who murdered someone at a at a restaurant. So tell me that story and again your, your view of that and how how it was almost like tarring with with, with the same brush on that side too.
1: Yeah, it was a um fifteen year old kid, I believe, a white cook. The cook was working in a twenty four hour diner in Colorado Spring. And uh the cook got off work. He had a young daughter, I believe. He got off work, was walking home, and uh car pulls alongside of him, gets his attention, and a gunshot rings out. The detectives pieced it all together. The uh The 15-year-old kid basically uh, shot the man because he was curious to see what it would like to kill somebody. Now, he was arrested, charged with uh, capital homicide, I believe it was, uh, into the court system as an adult uh, with the death penalty, or not the death penalty. He was brought into the court system as an adult. The black community in Colorado Springs been up in arms over the fact that he was not treated as a juvenile and the prosecutor was accused of, uh, racial prejudice. So the black community got together. One of the uh, Baptist churches, they managed to convince Dr. Abernathy to come into town and, uh, to, take up the cause of this young black kid. And Dr. Abernathy uh, came in and was helping to crusade on behalf of the kid. I was assigned to be Dr. Abernathy's bodyguard because it was still during my Klan investigation and they were protesting Dr. Abernathy's presence. I sat down with Dr. Abernathy in his hotel room and I asked him if he knew the story of um, this young black kid. He said he knew what he had been told. Well, to make a long story short, Dr. Abernathy had not been told the total story by the uh, church members in order to get him to come. Here you have Dr. Abernathy, a venerable respected leader in the uh, civil rights movement at the time, And uh, they managed to convince him to come into town. And uh, he's arguing, fighting on behalf of this murderer. Dr. Abernathy, after he had been told the truth about this kid, that he had wrongfully murdered the man, just to see what it was like to kill somebody, that the man was a husband, a father of a young daughter, Dr. Abernathy's whole opinion changed. But he was trapped. He had already committed himself in writing and uh, broadcasts and in uh, from the pulpit. Basically, he had been blackmailed. I witnessed it all. He didn't deserve that. So the kid was convicted of uh, the murder. To the best of my knowledge, he spent something like 35, 40 years in prison. I don't know what eventually became of him, where he's at to this day. But that's an example of a wrongful situation that never should have happened.
0: Yeah, and exactly. So like you said, the bad cop should never have happened. That should never happen. And to tar all those cases with the same brush is wrong. And we talk about even with nutrition, with fitness, with everything. No, no people are the same and no incidences are the same. And so I, I agree, you know, 100%, and I thought it was very, very powerful to use that example as well, that, you know, each of these individual things are their own case. And if you have this knee jerk to, to every cop that's killed or every black person that's killed, they're, they're not the same, you know, the you know, the, there's all these different degrees. And, and the sooner we treat these individuals as individual cases and stop having this this huge, response the more those individuals can actually get justice because one might be completely wrong and the other one might be completely right so um yeah so i thank you for for including that as well um i want to i want to just do one more kind of area wrap up and then do some wrap-up questions but the closing of the movie specifically was heart-wrenching it really was and you have these two parallel stories one of of jesse washington who was uh basically lynched in waco texas and and a friend of his who's now an elderly gentleman telling the story. And then also the, um, the Charlottesville attack that we had just a few years ago, the neo-Nazi drove into the, the protesters um, and ironically killed a white woman. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a subtext there to this is what happened 100 years ago, and there's still this element that we're seeing today. I had a gentleman on whose brother, um, sister-in-law, and her sister – Uh, Dea, Yusuf, and Razan, who were Muslim, were murdered by a white neighbor. And it was, you know, absolutely a a hate crime. So, what are you seeing now? Obviously, you know, not everyone in the community is like that, but what is the danger of, uh, white supremacy in America in 2020? The
1: danger of white supremacy in America in 2020 lies in the White House. Plain and simple. Donald Trump is the biggest danger representing America, he and his administration, his followers. He is the titular leader of the white supremacist movement, and America did this to itself by putting him there, and we have to ride out the storm right now.
0: Now what it, I, I I point this out a lot, so the last two people that we had, and I'm talking them as individuals, this isn't a uh a political thing at all i I don't hail from from left or right. I'm just you know me and my own personal opinion. but I question a lot why we ended up with those last two people. Neither of two of those I would have ever in you know a million years wanted to select from let's say the top. 100,000 people that should have been in line for the presidency. From your your perspective now with obviously, you know, multiple decades behind you, what is your view on our political system and how we're not seeming to get what I would view as true leaders, you know, that 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 we can really respect and I'm sure you know, everyone can name 20 people they would be honored to to have as our president, male, female, whatever, you know, whatever color, military service, Um, that we just seem to have such a poor choice when it comes to the end now.
1: I've got friends who insist that Barack Obama was the devil incarnate when it comes to uh, American politics. That all he did was promote issues and uh, things that appealed to black people. And when I ask them to be specific, they can't. They just say, he was for the blacks. Notice I said the blacks, not black people, because that's how they put it. He was for the blacks, which is a racist way of uh, uh, saying black people. Uh, why doesn't the same principle apply to George Bush second, and to Ronald Reagan and all the other white presidents that preceded Barack Obama. They never have an answer for that. In other words, it's about race. But they love everything Trump is doing. They call Barack Obama an imperial president because he was uh, governing a lot by executive orders simply because the Republicans were... Directing a barrier from him governing because they didn't want to cooperate with him. They didn't want to give him any wins. Well, Donald Trump is doing the same thing. Not for the same reason. He's doing the same thing simply because he's an the political process and he's changing a lot of things through executive order that they apply him. Don't say he's uh, governing by imperial decree like they did with Obama. It's racist, and it's racist, uh, racism-oriented. Uh, but they believe in what they're uh, championing. They believe in Donald Trump, and they are against everything that Obama stood for. And when you put the two side by side, there's no comparison. Barack Obama was governing on behalf of the American people. Donald Trump is doing things on behalf of Donald Trump and his... Uh, uh empire. So, I recognize the fact that America has slipped politically. We've got this racist in the White House. And until we get rid of him, by any means necessary, you can take that any way you want. I particularly don't care. But he needs to be gotten rid of. And uh, until we weather this uh, situation
0: yeah so my my view is this of, of coming from a different country is my hope is that you know we we're gonna have a leader someone who is intent on on making our country better and i mean that for the people so it doesn't matter to me if that person happens to be black white hindu gay straight whatever just the best leader, the best person, the person that's going to improve our schools, that's going to give healthcare so eighty-year-olds don't have to stand in Walmart, you know, Um fr- cr- prison reform and drug reform, so we don't have homelessness and ad- addiction problems and all this crime. And I'm still waiting to see that, you know, that it's 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 been person after person that's wearing different color ties that may have short, you know, uh, maybe you know this skin tone, that skin tone, whatever, but. It seems to be the same kind of person, you know, and, but I, I have to say, I'll, I'll be very, very blunt. When you start throwing out statements like Mexicans are rapists and murderers, then yeah, you are definitely stepping over the line of decency. Um, and, you know, diplomacy as well. You're starting up to, to, to poke the bear, as it were. But my, my yearning is to find a, a, an American. And we are an immigrant culture. Some, like you said, historically we've, we're forced here when you look far enough back, but we're a proud nation of men and women of all creeds and colors. And we just need a good human being to, to be proud of and to start overturning some of the things we, we are, you know, one of the most chronically ill nations on the planet. Yet we're one of the most affluent. I mean, it's just such a, 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 a disengagement of wealth and and health and happiness and and so i hope that whoever we get next left right you know independent whoever it is is someone who who truly wants to make this better and obviously you know with with the racial tension address that side too because that polarizing is not doing anything other than dividing this nation that we all adore
1: well everything you just mentioned is supposed to be how the system works we're supposed to go for the best person that will bring the country together, and work on behalf of the people of this country. I challenge anybody to show where Donald Trump has done any of that. He hasn't. Conversely, I challenge anybody to show where Barack Obama did just the opposite. They can't show that. So we need to find somebody that will go back and do the right thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I I couldn't agree more with that. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's it. That's, that's what the flag means. It doesn't mean an individual. It means the country. And I think I've talked about this in many episodes, but you know, it's, it's making our own community better. And it's what you did in Colorado Springs Police Department. And it's what everyone that's listening to this, this, this podcast is doing, whether they're first responders or in hospitals or, or, you know, corrections, whatever it is. Um and I I think all we ask is that the people in, in these government buildings do the same as the men and women that are on the streets protecting them.
1: Yeah, but it's hard for the people in government buildings to do their job when you have somebody at the head of the, the government who's forever attacking them for trying to do their job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the same down. I mean, police fire, you know, they, I mean that even in, internationally, like the my uh, British you know, brothers and sisters are constantly on strike. I mean, they're, they're being cut and you know, the NHS is being attacked, which is their healthcare system there, which I think is amazing. Um, so yeah, the people that are out there trying to make the world better are constantly fighting an uphill battle and it should be the other way around. They should be given the support of the infrastructure because they are the ones making the world better. They're the ones there you know, running on people on their worst day. So anyway, Ron, I want to go some, some uh, wrap-up questions so I can let you go. I've been very generous with your time. Um, your book is Black Klansman. I want to recommend it to everyone there. You actually narrate the audio book as well, which is what I did. I do want to, <laughs> I do want to do a warning though. I was listening, I had my windows down and pulled into a gas station. And then you start reciting some of the things that some of the Klansmen said. And I'm like, oh shit. Oh shit. I'm raising up my, uh, my windows and turning <laughs> down the stereo. So be careful when you listen listening to the audio book. But, uh, yeah, it's an incredible book. And I, I urge everyone to listen to that. Um, So firstly, where where else can people find your book?
1: Barnes & Noble uh, is the best place to find it. But any any bookstore in your community probably will have it. And if not, you can get it on Amazon and uh, uh, on Kindle.
0: Brilliant. So another question I'd like to ask, is there um, another book, like someone else's book, that you love to recommend to people? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different.
1: Yeah, if you want to read about the uh, Ku Klux Klan, a good uh, book about their rise to political power and, and it parallels what's going on in America today. There's a book by Linda Gordon, G-O-R-D is in David O-N, called The Second Coming of the KKK.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Um, now, again, with the movie, so Black Klansman is, is the movie and very well done. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny cause there's, there's some, when you listen to the, to the book or read the book, you realize there's some, some fictional elements in there as well. But, uh, aside from the little, um, frills they put on to make it, uh, more attractive, I guess, to, to a film goer, it pretty much stays true to your story. So I highly recommend people reading it and seeing the film. Are there any movies that you love?
1: Um, Malcolm X, by Spike Lee. I think it's probably his best movie, at least in my opinion. I think it's his best movie, uh, excluding uh, Black Klansman. I I like a lot of movies, so. and Malcolm is probably one of the better ones that have ever been, have ever been made.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's an observation I've I've talked about a couple times on here as well with with award ceremonies, is that Denzel Washington won uh an award for training day and and for some reason the academy that year wanted to make it like a a black actor year but it was it was crazy because if you've ever seen cry freedom that he did about steve biko in south africa and then malcolm x um uh, to me a far more powerful performances than than uh training day so it's it's um it's it's a shame that he didn't win an academy for in my opinion much better performances
1: Well, one thing I learned about my year in the Hollywood scene is that the Academy Award does not necessarily go to the best movie. It goes to the studio that puts out the best political uh, barrage promoting their movie. So the the people that win, movies that win, are basically the ones that pump the most money into uh, promoting their movie.
0: So not too dissimilar from politics then?
1: I'll give you an example of the movie Roma that was uh, leading went into the academies. a lot of people were saying it was going to win the movie. It didn't, but uh, it won all the the awards leading up to the uh, Academy. Roma was spending 30 million on their ad campaign for, uh, I mean the studio was spending 30 million on their ad campaign for Roma. Black Klansman wasn't uh, spending probably half
0: of that. That's, that's a huge amount of money. That sounds like the, the budget for the movie itself.
1: Uh, in some cases, it, it
0: is. Right. Well, then, on the movie theme, what about documentaries? Are there any documentaries that you love?
1: I recently saw Kobe Bryant's uh, Dear Basketball. I loved it.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Rest in peace. All right. Well, I've got one to, to, to suggest for you, then. I think you would love 13th one three th um it's uh, ava duvenay uh, on our legal system here they talk about birth of a nation in that that uh that documentary but it's extremely well done and very very powerful um and it talks a lot about slavery into into the prisons so i think you'd probably love that one um all right so the next question and i asked jay this and you were one of the people that he he told me about is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world?
1: Uh, Jerry Flowers. Flowers.
0: Flowers. Okay.
1: F L O W E R.
0: And what's his background?
1: Jerry, uh, was an Oklahoma city, uh, inspector detective. Um, uh, he was one of the first responders at the Oklahoma city bombing. And, uh, he worked, uh, gangs with me, good friend of mine. And, uh, he retired from the Oklahoma City Police Department and be, became head of the Oklahoma uh, Bureau of Agriculture uh, Investigators. They're what they call the cattle cops. And uh, he retired from there and became a uh, marshal in Oklahoma. And he recently uh, retired from there. And to be honest with you, I don't know what he's doing right now, but Jerry's got over 40 years in law enforcement, and uh, he's still going strong.
0: Wow. Yeah, hopefully he's resting now after all that. My God. Um, yeah, I would love to connect with him if you were able to, to connect us up. It sounds like an incredible story. And I had uh, Chris Fields on the show who was – when you think about the Oklahoma bombing, there was that one very tragically iconic picture of a fireman holding a, a baby who had passed. That was Chris, and he, he came on the show about a year ago.
1: Was it the headless
0: baby? It uh, wasn't headless, though, but she had passed away. Uh, they they pulled her from the rubble, but, but she didn't make it. So it was a very, very sad story.
1: Jerry tells the story of uh, going through the uh, rubble and uh, of, a, of a first responder picking up a baby and carrying him. And when they finally got to safety, looking at the baby and looked down and there was no head.
0: Oh god, yeah. Because there was a whole kindergarten on the uh, or a daycare on on the ground floor. Yeah, that's awful, awful. All right. Well, one more question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress when you want to relax these days?
1: I read a lot and I write. I'm working on a follow up to my book. About fifty pages into it, and uh, I keeps me grounded.
0: Excellent. Well, please let me know when it's ready. I will definitely you know, let everyone listening know that uh, the new one is out. Um, all right. Well, I want to thank you so much. Where can people find you online if they want to reach out? Do you have social media or a website?
1: Oh, not really. Uh, you can contact me at uh, Ron Stahl, S-T-A-L-L, at AOL.com.
0: All right. Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much. I know this, this weird Englishman kind of came out of nowhere and asked you if you do a, an hour and a half conversation with him. But, um, you know, your story is so powerful. Your, your perspective is unique and, you know, very raw and honest. Um, but it needs to be heard. You know, we, we hear so much about certain groups that are creating a huge amount of, you know, death and destruction in our country at the moment. But this is an area where we don't hear. As much, but I mean, you know, when you read the paper closely, it, it does happen a lot. So it is a topic that needs to be, you know, talked about. And then, and then the the, the irony is is the the story through your perspective. There's there's a there's an amount of humor to it as well, like the ridiculousness of elements of, of the clan too. But I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and and allowing me to to kind of hear your journey from your perspective.
1: No worries, no worries. Thanks a lot.